Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, We are carrying on this morning in our study in the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't uh, have a Bible, there should be one uh, somewhere in a chair near you. And I'd encourage you to take it out. You can find this on page 977. And I want us to begin this morning by imagining that you got a new job. Uh, You left the job you're in and you've joined a new investment firm. And this investment firm is growing. It's led by a brilliant founder who came up with a brand new way to do investment, totally different than it's been done before. And it has totally and completely transformed your understanding of money and finances and how you manage that whole world. And you're so excited that you've joined this organization and you begin to tell your friends and your coworkers and your family, you should join this. This is amazing. And they get interested. And they begin to ask you all kinds of questions about the founder. And you explain his ideas and how amazing they are. And and then you say, but he's gone on a long trip and he has left his organization to be led by a CEO. And they say, oh, okay, well, tell us about him. And you say, well, this man originally was actually quite opposed to uh, the investing uh, practices of this founder. But then he saw how brilliant they were. And now he is leading our whole organization. And, and your friends, your family say, well, we'd, we'd like to meet him. We want to ask him some more questions. Now imagine that your response was this. Well, uh, actually, you can't meet him because he has been arrested by the federal government and is currently in a federal penitentiary awaiting trial on criminal charges. Kind of awkward, right? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing that the person in charge of this whole organization is actually in prison kind of takes away the confidence that people would have had in the message that you were sending them, right? And yet this was the problem for the church in Ephesus. You see, the the people who came to faith in Ephesus, they began to tell their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers, you should follow Jesus. I mean, he has totally transformed how we do our lives. But he has gone back to heaven. And the leader of our church now is a man named Paul. He told us all about Jesus and all about what it means to follow him. And their family and friends said, well, we'd like to meet him. And it's like, well, actually, Paul happens to be in prison right now in Rome. And that became very awkward for the church in Ephesus. Now, if you don't know the background, the reason why Paul is in Rome is because a number of years earlier, After he'd gone on a missionary journey through different parts of the Roman Empire, he came back to Jerusalem. And when he was there, he entered into the Jewish part of the temple that was reserved only for Jews. And someone accused him of bringing a Gentile in there. Now, he hadn't actually brought a Gentile into that part of the temple. But a mob formed and they were going to attack him. And so some soldiers came and rescued him. And they put him under arrest. And his enemies used that as an opportunity to bring charges against him. And he got in this long legal process until ultimately he had to appeal to Caesar. So now, years later, Paul is still in prison, even though he is totally innocent. But the problem for the church in Ephesus is that the people of Ephesus don't know that. They just know that Paul, the leader of this organization, is in prison. And it's from prison that Paul writes this letter to the church that we're reading. And if you have been tracking with us as we've studied through this letter, you know that Paul is so excited about what God has done for us. I mean, in the opening verses, he can barely take a breath as he tells us how we are new creation in Christ, how how 
the, we have all these benefits from being in Christ. And in the second part of chapter one, he goes on to say, not only that, but he prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might understand how great the power of Christ is at work in us. And then he begins chapter two by saying, you know, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but now by God's grace, we have been saved through faith. And he's given us a purpose and a reason for our lives. And in the second part of this chapter, uh, chapter two, he says, not only that, but God is making a new humanity, a new, a new people by reconciling Jews and Gentiles into one people. And he's so excited. He can't wait now to burst into prayer. Praise God for all of this. And that's where we pick this up in Ephesians chapter three. And we're going to begin just by looking at verse one. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... And then he stops. He stops mid-sentence. Now, his goal was to pray. We know this because if you look down in verse 14, he starts this way again after this time in between. He says, for this reason, for all these reasons that we've been talking about, I bow my knees before the Father. And he enters into this beautiful prayer, excited again for what God's doing. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he actually stops in mid-sentence. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner... And then it's like he says, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, wait, let's just stop and talk about the fact that I am in prison because I know this is a major problem. And of course, as we've already seen, it is a little awkward if the leader of your organization is in prison. But it was even more difficult in Paul's day. You see, in Paul's day, there was no one who was an atheist. Everybody worshiped some sort of God. And the thinking in Paul's day was that if you experience more success in your life than the guy next to you, it's because your God was more powerful than his. But of course, that meant the opposite was also true. If you experience less success than the guy next to you, or worse yet, if you found yourself in prison for several years in a row on charges that weren't true, then that would suggest to you that that your God was not a very good God. Certainly not a very powerful God and probably not one that you really wanted to be putting your trust in. So you can understand how Paul being in prison would have made things difficult for the church in Ephesus when they went to share their faith. How are they supposed to show the world that Jesus was the source of true life and true happiness and true success when their key leader was in prison? I mean, they're looking at all the different gods. They say, well, if Jesus is the God I'm supposed to pin my hopes and my faith on, I'm not so sure because he can't even keep the leader of his own faith out of prison. It was a major problem for the church in Ephesus. And in many ways, it's still a problem for us today. Now, by God's grace, none of our leaders in Canada are currently in prison and in our day and age, it's not like we, you know, we think that gods are kind of competing for one another and we you know, have to pick the right God to to make sure that our world is successful, our life is successful. But the fact of the matter is that today, much like in Paul's day, people still want to be successful in life. They still want to find happiness and meaning and purpose in their life. And in our day, people don't look for the right God. Instead, they look for the right worldview, the right set of beliefs and values that are going to help them live a fulfilling successful, happy life. And they should. We all do. And the way that they do that is they look around to see who else is living a successful life. 
And often the first thing that people see is high-profile people, people who are wealthy and powerful and famous and whose worldview is, I got this way by looking out for me first. I, I became successful and happy by always making sure that I took care of myself first. And they look at that and they say, oh, that looks pretty good. And then they compare that with a Christian worldview, Christian beliefs, Christian values who say the way to true success in this life is by putting others first, is by taking up our cross and following Jesus. And they compare that with this and they say, you know, when I look at that, it's like these people put themselves in prison. They're not much different than Paul was in prison in Ephesus. If I'm going to look for success in my life, I'm not sure that I'm going to pin my hope on a man who calls me to give my life away and to take up my cross and follow him. This, this way of living doesn't look very wise. So the question is, how, how does God respond to that? What is his plan so that he might show the world that actually following Jesus is the right way? That this is the best way to true success and happiness. Well, as we see, that's what Paul's going to explain to us now. He's going to help us understand what that is. So let's talk, take a look at this passage. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, if you had troubles understanding everything that Paul said there, you're not alone. He actually says an awful lot in a very short space. And so you have to look at it very closely to understand what he's saying. So let's go back and look more carefully at it. In verses 2 and 3, he starts this way. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Now, you have to understand that it's been several years since Paul was in Ephesus. So there's some new Christians there. And so he, he, he... He's assuming that they've heard, but he wants to make sure that they have heard about the mystery that was revealed to him. Now, when the Apostle Paul speaks of mystery, he's not talking about a riddle that you have to figure out. Rather, he's speaking of something that was hidden from us as, as humanity that was only revealed to us by God. We could only understand it if God helped us know what it was. He says, this mystery that we couldn't figure out on our own has been revealed to us through me. 
by revelation alone. Now, what is that mystery? Well, he tells us in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he's saying here is that it's through Jesus Christ that the Gentiles are fully equal with the Jews before God. Now to us that doesn't sound that profound, but in that day that was unbelievable news. You see, in the Old Testament there was all these hints that God was going to bring the Gentiles to him. But, But all throughout the Old Testament it was like the Jews were God's people and the Gentiles that came to him, they were kind of like honorary Jews, kind of like Second-class Jews, kind of. They were in, but they weren't like really the people of God. And here in this passage, Paul says, oh no, the mystery that was revealed to me is that there is not any second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. Jew or Gentile, all are fully equal before God. And to show this, he uses three words. And to each of these words in Greek, he adds a Greek prefix that means together with or co So the first word he says is Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs. We have the same inheritance. We we who are Gentiles have the same privileges, the same rights, the same responsibilities as those who are naturally born into God's people, the Jewish people. Then he says, secondly, that we have the same body. And here he he, he uses the Greek word body and he adds this prefix to it. He actually makes a new word because he wants to make the point so clear. He says, we are co-body. In our version, in the English Standard Version, it says we are co-members of the same body. But in Greek it says, no, we're co-body. So this isn't isn't like two groups, like Jews and Gentiles that kind of work together. It's not like they're opposite sides of the same coin. It's not like they kind of, you know, get along. He says, no, no, co-body, all together. You can't function unless you're one. That's his message. And then the third word he uses is the word sharers, co-sharers. Our version says partakers of the promise of God. Now, the promises are the promise that that God gave Abraham, that through Abraham, he would bless all nations. So therefore, he says, the Gentiles get the same blessings, utterly the same as the Jewish people that come through Abraham. Paul says, this is the mystery that was revealed to me. Now, look at verses four and five. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He says, look, this mystery was hinted at in the past, but now, now we have the whole thing, but it's only been revealed to a few apostles and a few prophets, of whom he himself was the one to whom the revelation came. So let's put this all together, understand what Paul's saying. Paul says, by the grace of God, I received this revelation of this mystery. Jews and Gentiles are equal before God. You can't figure it out on your own. There's not a whole bunch of books written about it. There's just a few apostles and and, and prophets who know it. And I'm the chief one who knows it. And I'm in prison. I'm stuck here. I'm not going anywhere. You know, from a worldly point of view, that doesn't look very good. I mean, of all the people who should be out having meetings and organizing and and meeting, uh, writing books and and having conferences and meeting with synagogues and churches to reveal this unbelievable revelation from God, it should be Paul. And he's the one stuck in prison. 
But look again how he describes himself. He says, I'm in prison not because of the Jews, not because of King Agrippa, not because of Caesar, not because of my enemies. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In fact, the New International Version translates verse 1 this way. Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm his prisoner. And here's the first thing that you need to understand if you want to understand what Paul is saying here. And he's saying this, Paul's imprisonment is by Christ's design. It isn't an accident that he's in prison. It's not an unfortunate circumstance or bad luck. Paul is in prison by the sovereign will of God himself because that's part of God's plan. And you say, why? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Of all people, he's the one to whom the revelation comes. He should be out telling everybody. Why? Well, Paul's going to explain that next. Look at verse 7. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He says, I have the privilege to share the good news of Jesus Christ, not because I'm so smart, not because I'm unbelievably charismatic, not because I'm so gifted. He says, I have this privilege only because of the grace of God and only through the power of God at work in me. That's all. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say this. To me, though, uh, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, look, not only do I preach only because of God's grace, only because of his power work in my life, but I actually have a lot of baggage. I'm the least of all the saints. And, and they all knew what he's talking about, and so do we, don't we? I mean, he was the original persecutor of the church. Paul was the first one who hunted down Christians and is personally responsible for imprisoning and killing many of them. He says, I have no right to share this gospel except for what Jesus has done in my life. And here's the message that he wants them and for us to understand. And it's this, that while he has an important role to play in what God is doing, he isn't the end game. It doesn't all hang on Paul. It isn't going to be up to Paul to convince and to prove to the world that Jesus and following him is the best way to find success and purpose and meaning in this life. God actually has a much bigger plan than Paul. He just has a role for Paul to play in this plan. And that's in fact what Paul says next. Look at verse 9. He says, not only has he been given grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, but he says, to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? He says, look, my role is to help everyone. You, Gentiles, you, Jews, everyone to understand what is God's plan. So this is the second point that you need to to see here. Paul's mission is to help us understand God's plan. So what is the plan? How is it that God is going to show the world that following Jesus is the best way and not this this other glamorous thing that our culture looks at? Well, here's God's plan. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's plan. That through the church, his manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You might say, okay, Okay, but Paul, what what are you talking about here? Well, let's look at it again. Let's start with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
Uh, If you've been tracking with us in our study through Ephesians, you know they've come up a number of times. These are demonic forces that are in open rebellion against God. And the way that they rebel against God is they take good, beautiful human organizations and institutions and try to twist them so that they, in fact, oppose the gospel. And they try to get those, those organizations and those institutions to adopt the wisdom of the, of the rulers and the powers in the heavenly places. And their wisdom is that success in life comes through having power over others. Success in life comes from always putting me first over everyone else. So let me give you an example. Help understand what I mean by this. In Paul's day, the picture of ultimate success was Caesar Augustus. Now, by the time he wrote this letter, Caesar Augustus had been dead for a little while. But the people in Ephesus held him in high, high regard. In fact, if you remember, so much so that they actually designed their whole calendar around his birth and his, his, his life. And in their eyes, Caesar Augustus was the ultimate picture of success. I mean, he had unlimited power, unbelievable prestige, glamour, fame, unfathomable wealth. Every pleasure was available to him. And so in the eyes of that world, his lifestyle, his his gods were the ones that you would put your trust in if you wanted the same kind of success. And yet if they knew, and maybe they did, I don't know. But if they knew how he got his power, they would see that he got it by following the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, he got it by always seeking power over others. So if you read a story of his life, I mean, he lied and cheated. He double dealt. He, he slept around. He used his family as pawns. He divorced his first wife when she became inconvenient to him. He married off his sister to his arch enemy so that he'd have political control over him. He traded the life of his uncle. He said, you can kill my uncle if I can have permission to kill one of your friends who was his political opponent. He confiscated lands. He went into certain parts of the empire and destroyed whole villages that were utterly innocent so that he could get a reputation as being a great general. He, he was deceptive and wicked at every level. And because of that, he became the ultimate picture of success. Now, his life was filled with constant conflict, with anger, with paranoia, with broken relationships, and with death everywhere that he went. And what looked so beautiful from a distance actually came from an incredible world of pain and hurt, both to him and to, frankly, everyone around him. But this is what the people in Paul's day held up as a successful life. It was the wisdom of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And if you look around today, you know, our world isn't that much different again, is it? I mean, look, look at, and, you know, I want to be so gentle here. But, but, but look at the celebrities in our world. I mean, their life is so glamorous on the red carpet. It's so beautiful. And yet we know that often their world is filled with so much hurt. Look at the political world. I mean, just, just watch the presidential primaries in the United States. I mean, here's the wisdom of the rulers and authorities. Power comes from being nasty and mean and, and cruel and spreading lies and hatred everywhere you go. But it's not just down there in the States that all that stuff happens. I mean, it happens much closer to home. It happens in our own workplaces sometimes, in our own families, in our, in our, own, in our schools. 
People who are looking for power and prestige and wealth, they sometimes are lying and cheating and, and manipulating and backstabbing. And if you look at them from a distance, they actually look kind of successful. But often there's a real world of hurt all around them. And in their own lives too, because they're following the wisdom of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms who are in open rebellion against God. So, how does God counter this image that looks so good? What is his plan? Well, Paul says that this is the mystery that has been hidden through the ages, but is now revealed to us. The way that God is going to reveal his manifold wisdom, that his ways of following Jesus is better than anything else. The way that he's going to do that is not through power. It's not through money. It's not through charismatic leaders. That, by the way, is why Paul is in prison, so that people don't think that it's through Paul that he's going to do this. No, he says, the way that he is going to display his manifold wisdom is through a new people. Through a people, uh, through his church, which is made up of all kinds of people who would never normally get along, who were actually enemies at one time, but who are now friends, who are more than friends, who are brothers and sisters, who are, who are co-heirs, co-body, co-sharers in what God is doing because they've been reconciled through what Jesus did on the cross. Your outline puts it this way. God's plan is to display his wisdom through radical reconciliation between believers. Now, let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean for us here at Willingdon Church? Surely for us, we don't have a real issue here between Jews and Gentiles. That's not really our area that we need to work on reconciliation. But there are a number of other areas, all kinds of other areas. For instance, marriages. You know, we proclaim the manifold wisdom of God when we have strong, healthy biblical marriages. When the people around us can look at a Christian couple who lives together in deep love and respect for one another. Now, if you're married, you know that's not always easy. I mean, every marriage has its troubles, and we as Christians are no exception. We have all kinds of troubles too. However, when we face hard times in our marriages, you know, we we don't turn to the wisdom of the world and seek power over our spouse. That leads to disaster. Instead, our goal is to seek reconciliation, to seek to make it right, to humble ourselves. And you know, when we do that, and the world sees marriages that were struggling, that have been reconciled because of what Jesus has done, they see the wisdom of following Jesus. That's God's plan. But it's not just marriages. It's all kinds of relationships. Relationships between mothers and daughters, between fathers and sons. Reconciliation of relationship between church leaders. Reconciliation between members of small groups who are in the same small group, but something was said or something was done and it hurt. And they're together in the group, but they're not really, you know, together. They're just kind of in the same room. Reconciliation between those who serve on the same ministry team, but they're, they're just serving kind of side to each other. They're not actually working together as a team. Reconciliation in all kinds of places. You know, hard things happen in the church all the time. People say things. People do things. It just happens when we live together in community. The question for us as followers of Jesus is this. When that happens, how are we going to respond? Are we just going to kind of put it off? Are we going to seek power over them? Or are we going to genuinely seek to be reconciled? 
And by reconciled, we mean not just tolerate, but actually come together. Co-heirs, co-sharers, co-body. Now look, this is not an easy thing. We all know this. In fact, finding reconciliation with one another is very hard. It's a battle. Such a battle that Paul points out to us that it's actually a spiritual battle. In fact, in fact, when we seek reconciliation between one another as followers of Jesus, that is the primary way that we as Christians engage in spiritual warfare. Because you know what? When we find reconciliation with one another, we declare to the principalities and powers, to the forces of darkness that oppose God, that, he, that they rather have been defeated by Jesus on the cross. And frankly, that's what the rest of Ephesians is all about. I mean, look at it with me. If I'm working with the English Standard Version. If you look at the heading of chapter 4, the heading is, first part of chapter 4 is unity in the body of Christ. How we get along with one another. And if you look down at verse 17, it talks about the new life. And if you read there, it's all about how we speak to one another with respect and with love. And the heading of chapter 5 says, walk in love. It's all about how we love one another as the church. And in verse 22, it talks about wives and husbands. How do two Christians live together in a marriage that honors God? How are they reconciled? And in chapter 6, children and parents. How do families live together? And slaves and masters. And then, halfway through chapter 6, this very famous passage on the whole armor of God. Now, that's all about spiritual warfare. And if we don't understand what Ephesians is all about, we begin to think spiritual warfare is all about calling down demons and casting things out. And it feels like Paul just kind of tacked that on at the end. I mean, think about this. Ephesians 1, verse 1, all the way to halfway through chapter 6 is all about how we live as the, as the church. And then he suddenly changes directions and talks about this spiritual warfare thing, totally different. Not at all. Spiritual warfare, in large part, is about how we live reconciled together with one another. That's why he ends with this. So, the fact of the matter is, when we live together in reconciliation towards one another, that's how God displays his victory, his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's how we, his people, show the world around us that following Jesus is the best way to find true success and true meaning and true purpose in this life. Now, there's a lot that could be said about how we seek reconciliation with one another. And next fall, or this coming fall, when we look at the second part of Ephesians, we'll talk about that. But I want to take just a moment to explain one key idea that comes out of this passage that we're, that we're talking about. You know, when there's conflict in your life, if you're at all like me, and I think in many ways you are, and you imagine that conflict, somebody's done something, you're like, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them have it. Or at least you dream about that, you know? You know how this goes in your head, right? You say, when I see them, I'm going to tell them A. And I'll bet you they're going to say B. But then I'm going to come back with C. And then I'm going to use example D. And I'm going to add a little E sarcasm in there. Bang, right? And, and, and in, in your mind, if it's, you're like me, you're like, and in the end, they're going to be crushed. They're going to say, oh, Jonathan, you are all right. I was all wrong. Please forgive me. Right? I mean, we've all had this thinking, haven't we? But then the real life meeting comes. And it never goes that way, does it? It never does. It just gets more messy when you go into it that way. Because we're coming at it from the, the, the wisdom of the principalities and powers. The rulers and authorities that say, I find success by having power over you. Now, 
the manifold wisdom of God, so counterintuitive, is that when we, if we want to find reconciliation with one another, the way that we come at it is from a position of weakness. Seems so backwards. So that means that when you're imagining a conflict with someone, when you're thinking through your mind, oh boy, that instead of thinking how you're going to trap them, you think, what, what would make them feel trapped? What, what, would, what would threaten them? And then you say, I'm not going to go there. I will not do that to them. And then when you get together with them in real life, you don't, you don't sugarcoat it. You don't get all Christian and say, oh, it was really nothing. No, no, you say, you know what you did? It hurt me. When you said this or did that, that really bothered me because of this or that. But then you say, then, then you put yourself in a position of weakness. Then you say, now sometimes I misread things wrong. So help me understand. Now that's, that's a position of weakness. Like I might be wrong here. An accusation is from, from power. You did this. But the wisdom of God says, if we approach it from weakness, then there'll be reconciliation. And our goal isn't to trap them and to crush them, but rather to find a way to restore that relationship. Because you see, as followers of Jesus, the end goal is not domination. The end goal is reconciliation. And when we approach conflict with that kind of attitude, often, not always, but often, there is genuine reconciliation between us and the other person. So, here's the question. Who in the church do you need to be reconciled with? Who is it around this place that you've been avoiding? Who who is it that you get along with, but your relationship has never been the same as it used to be because something was said or something was done? Who is it that you used to be co-heirs, co-body, co-sharers with, but now you just simply coexist with? You know, if God has put a name in your mind, that's him speaking to you today, right here, right now. And he's saying to you, you go and you make it right with them. You seek reconciliation with them. And don't you wait for them to start. You be the one to go and to start. And you might be thinking, oh my goodness, this is not going to be easy. And it's not. It's so hard. I know. But if you're struggling with that, then here's my word of encouragement to you. You go find a, an older, mature Christian in your life, someone that you respect. You say, Please help me. Help me with this. You don't go to them and, and lay out all the years of what they did and complain about them. You just say, here's the situation. How can I go about making this right? And you ask them to pray for you. And then you ask them to encourage you. Now, the word encouragement literally means to impart courage. You say, please, some of your courage, would you give it to me so that I might have courage to go and do what I need to do? And then do it. And then do it. Why? Because this is God's plan for how he's going to show the world his wisdom. Us are people who are reconciled to one another. Who live together in harmony. Listen to how Paul ends this whole discussion. Verses 11 to 13. He says, this, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This has always been God's plan for us. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul says, don't you worry about me. I'm in prison for a reason. I'm suffering here. I'm in humiliation and shame here because God's going to reap his glory through you, through how you're living your life, a reconciled people of God. 
That was his message to the church in Ephesus. And to us today, he has a similar message. To us today, he says, look, don't you be worried about the fact that we don't have Christian leaders who are, you know, making all the laws in the land and, and, and speaking the message that, that they're not highly honored. Fact of the matter is, we often wish that it was our Christian leaders who were running this society that we're living. And the fact of the matter is that often they're ignored and even outright despised. God says, don't you worry about that because he's got a plan. And his plan is that people will be drawn to Jesus, not because of the power of the church, but rather because of the love that we have for one another. Because we live in harmony. Because those who are enemies have now been reconciled through Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine how beautiful that becomes in a culture where this power leads to nothing but hurt and and anger and paranoia and heartache. Then this kind of life becomes beautiful. Imagine how attractive that becomes to those who have sought power and are so tired of power. They just want to be loved. They just want to be cared for. They just want to be part of a community of people who say, we love one another. That comes through Jesus Christ. That's God's plan for how he's going to display his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities and to us and to the world around us. So let's be a people of reconciliation. Let's live together in unity. And let's display the manifold wisdom of God to a world that is dying without him. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's pray. God, uh, you uh, have this plan. It wasn't to show the whole world through Paul uh, that Jesus was the way, although you used him in profound ways. But really, your, God, your plan, God, has been to use us, your people, your body gathered in this place, reconciled, Father, to display the beauty of what Jesus has done. God, please use us. God, please help us where there is strife between us, where there's been hurts, Father, not only to forgive, but to be genuinely reconciled. So we see one another and we're in good relationship. Father, you know how hard that is. I pray for courage and strength for each of us who needs to be reconciled with someone. God, may you instill us with your courage, with your strength, with the power of your spirit to do what we need to do, Father, so that the world looks and says, look how they love one another. Man, it must be nice to be part of what they're involved in. So, Father, we pray that you would do this among us. Uh, Father, for your glory, for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.